Uh, welcome to part two of our look at uh, consumption tax. Um, we're just gonna, before we get started into uh, down and dirty to this, uh, let's just, uh, could you give us a bit of a recap of uh, part one there for yeah, anybody for who sure. might have watched it a couple days ago? <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Thanks. It's uh, just some relative points of note that we covered from, from the first part. Namely, um, the, what, we're, what we're talking about today is a consumption tax, so um, replacing entirely an income tax structure with a tax on consumption, so a sales tax instead of an income tax. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I wanted to articulate further is just, uh, we, we did mention people of high net worths and a lot of the contrarian arguments to having consumption taxes. Uh, one of the main ones being that uh, people of high net worths, and this is on the side for the consumption tax. So I'm sort of playing both 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 sides with this. But people in favor of the consumption tax like to dwell on net worth and um, relative wealth that has been accumulated over years or generations through inheritances and stuff. And that's not sort that's not falling along the same lines as income. It's the income they earn from that that we're discussing is. Uh, is is not commensurate with the productivity that they're contributing to the economic system. So it's the earned income they got on on equity investments and insurance policies and all these other uh, wheels. And the problem too with considering net worth though, um, the reason why I think it's misleading is because in a sense, if somebody has uh, $10 billion in net worth and half of that is through shares of companies, if they decided to liquidate all their shares to get that money so that they could spend it, not just be worth that much as a number on paper, but actually spend it and put it to use, the process of selling that many shares affects the price of the share. So if your net worth is based on $100 a share because that's what the listed price is and you've got 100,000 shares, as soon as you start selling 10,000 shares all at once and you dump them on the market, the bids the highest bids will get executed first, but then as you keep selling shares, the price of the stock goes down. So your net worth that you're calculating, your, your, not you, but your entire premise on, the net worth figure that you get from the onset changes as you start selling and liquidating your assets. So it's not a very good weight of measurement when you're considering uh, residual income or operating budgets that we're discussing. So when we talk about a, co a company like um, like Apple, whose operating budget is as, as large as some companies, it's the, the income they earn on their money that we're talking should be taxed. We're not just saying we should go after rich people with pitchforks and just take all their wealth. That's not at all the point. The point is if there's a flaw that got them all this wealth, fine, let them keep it. But don't let them, don't let the problem persist and get worse. We should change the tax structure so that uh, income disparity becomes less of an issue. There's no problem with there being a whole bunch of millionaires. Yeah, out chickpeas in the world. don't cut it. There is a problem if millionaires are out there and everyone else is poor. And by poor, I mean like basic yeah. needs not met. Housing. Most people can't afford a house on their own. They have to have two two incomes. That's just statistically accurate. Most people can't afford their own house. Most people can afford their own food though. 
So we don't really have an issue in Canada with access to food, except for people who don't work at all, because the money that's budgeted through the government to give those people food is not nearly, um, it's not nearly enough for a person to reasonably sustain themselves. If you give them a, a $200 a month budget for food, literally the only thing I can eat is rice, bread, uh, you know, they're not getting any fish, any steak or any seafood or anything like that. Uh, and we all know that part of a well-balanced diet is having variety in your food sources. So, right. <laughs> but every now and then you need chickpeas, but you, you can't just live off one or two, two staples. Um, the other thing we touched on was the law of diminishing returns. So that's the, that's the idea that the more money you make, um, the less useful or valuable that money becomes to you um, moving forward as you get more and more of it. So an example is if you have one car, you can probably wash your one car once a week on the weekends and gas it up. But if you have 15 cars, you would spend a full-time job just gassing up all your cars, washing all your cars, waxing all your cars, parking all your cars. Like having more of something to a point eventually becomes a liability and a burden on you that becomes a cost. You then have to pay somebody to look after all your cars for you because you don't have time to do it yourself. So the law of diminishing returns essentially states that uh, somebody who makes $10,000 receiving $1,000 is a huge boon to them. That That's like a life changing. They can get pots and pans that they couldn't afford before and then finally start cooking proper food or um, they can afford a medical expense or dental expense or anything like that. But whereas somebody who's got, you know, even a hundred thousand dollars, one thousand dollars is they just throw it in like a a, a drop in in their investment bucket. Because where else are you gonna? If they wanted a thousand dollars to spend on something, they would have just withdrawn it and spent it because <laughs> it didn't matter to them. So, uh, one of the so getting back to the consumption tax that we're talking about. Um, the more the most popular consumption tax that's out there is the fair tax, and there are some really I don't I don't want to call them um, I I don't want to say they're doing it intentionally to be evil or selfish or greedy or anything like that, but the effect of it comes out as that, and the way they present their arguments, um, for example, Joseph Salerno, who wrote uh, the myth of the fair tax, is uh, he's known for saying things like, if if you had a, a group of slaves, and this is Joseph Salerno, not me, but if you had a group of slaves, paraphrasing obviously, uh, giving one slave preferential treatment and saying that maybe they only have to work a 12-hour day instead of a 16-hour day like the rest of the slaves, his argument would state that... Um, if you give special treatment to one, should you not add the burden of all the other slaves to that one slave who had preferential treatment? Like, and this is like the conservative argument towards keeping the tax system the way it is because it benefits those people who are in power trying to keep it the way it is rather than change it. But he would say that slavery itself is unjust. So it's unjust to shift the burden of weight from all other slaves towards the one slave who got preferential treatment. But the flaw in the argument is it does nothing to address the slave trade owner. <laughs> the master is completely not even factored in. And what we're talking about and what, what um, 
the universal basic income and, and Occupy Wall Street discussions, none of that was talking about people who made 250 or 500,000 a year. And, and that's equivalent to like making $3,000 a day. And I mean, anybody in this country or the States could survive on $3,000 a day. Most people make less than that in a month. So what we're really talking about and have to keep in mind is scales, which is the other thing I wanted to, to make sure we reiterated from our, from our last part. The scale of asset distribution and wealth is what people are getting confused about when they think that there would be some kind of st stunting of the economy or spending if there was more taxation on consumption. It ignores the fact that we're already paying that tax. And in fact, we already can't afford it. And that's why we're trying to change the system so that we can afford it. So the argument suggests basically and implicitly that changing the system just can't work because it wouldn't work in this system. Like they're, they're saying, if you keep the way the system is now and you add a sales tax to that, then yeah, they would be accurate in, in projecting that people would spend less because they have less. But if you remove the income tax altogether and people have the power to spend the money before the government rebates them a year later, so they have it on hand. Secondly, they, they can factor it in because the costs aren't hidden. When I work a $20 an hour job, I get $20 per hour that I work. That's totally different from getting a $20 an hour job and then coming home at the end of the day, thinking that you can afford that plumbing expense and then realizing you only got $10. Yeah, I used to, uh, when I was getting paid, uh, I think 12 bucks an hour, I was just, I, I wouldn't even do the math. I would just assume I was getting 10 bucks an hour because it was easier to do the math in my head. Yeah, exactly. And that's, so, I think, what most people have to try and do is figure out what, what they normally get taken off. And then they have to do all this like gymnastics mentally to try and figure out how many hours they have to work to afford this one extra expense. Yeah. And instead of hiding all those costs and using that, that obfuscation to help people who don't need the help spare themselves from, from paying taxes, you could have a flat tax on all consumable goods that all people can buy and do buy because poor people buy consumable goods all the time, like movies and music and people go out camping and they spend money on a campsite. Like it, it never stops people from, from earning money the risk that they're going to be taxed on it because the tax can never be more than the money you earn. So the conservative argument, and I'm using conservative as not the political sense now, but conservative meaning they're trying to keep the status quo. That argument doesn't hold water if you look at it, but most people don't. <laughs> so on that, um, we're uh, swaying pretty close to actually looking at it. So why don't we do just that? Mm -hmm. uh, and then get into the arguments later because um, I do have a few things I want to run by, but I think those would be good for after. So why don't we take a look at exactly what um, a consumption tax would look like? So the, the nuts and bolts of it. Um, okay. And to, to keep it simple, we'll go back to our family income average numbers from 2010 that I got from the Fraser Institute. Right. Um and just to recap that, basically, we had a 13% tax on income tax for the, for the family for the year. But at the end of the year, the family was taxed 41.3% on average for the entire household after you factor in all their other taxes and stuff. Right. So if you just use that 41% number, 
and you wiped out all taxes everywhere, which isn't reasonable. I'm not suggesting we do this, but the premise is the ideation of this is um, everything you buy then just has that 41% sales tax to it. That's fundamentally the premise of a consumption tax. So you just lump, lump everything you're already paying and take that fraction into a sales tax that gets you the exact same budgets for every other province and city and township and, and everything. Right. So everyone would, everyone across the board uh, who's able to pay taxes. So like uh, would, um, so everyone the able to spend pays taxes. Right. So able to pay taxes would be the ability to spend. Right. Uh, and this would not be, um, th- would this, so you get, uh, and we make it so maybe 30, 40%, something like that. So everyone who would be buying anything would be paying 30 to 40%. Um, now, before we get into how does this affect uh, the way the prices would go, um, because, well, everything would be put onto the consumer. But um, so whether they go cheaper or more expensive, it depends. Um, but the... Um, it, would there be a difference between personal and business purchases? So you make a, uh, a purchase, but a business, would they still be, so they buy, you know, uh, you know, 30 tons of steel. They still have to pay that sales tax on that 30 tons of steel. Well, here's the thing in, in the sense for the, for the example, we just outlaid where, you know, families are paying 41% tax anyway. So you might as well just charge all, all consumable goods. Right. 1%. In that example, businesses aren't paying taxes at all already. So right. it doesn't factor in because their, their factor is zero at present. They write off all business expenses. Okay. And, and that's meant to stimulate the economy. So, you know, we already just give them a buy for that. So, but if you are, but like, uh, I remember I was running a video store, uh, and, I would have to go buy, you know, I'd have to go to the wholesaler and then buy from them. And uh, we would write off our purchases. Um, now, so all the tax in the system would be personal expenditure tax at the end of the, um, at the end of the, because at the end of the thing. So because, you know, you, you buy raw materials and you produce them and you put them together and then you sell them and there's a sale tax on that. You sell it to the wholesaler. The wholesaler buys it from them and there's a sales tax on this. This is sounding a lot like value added tax, uh, mm-hmm. but there's only this because you know it's a, it's a transaction. Uh, and then the wholesaler sells it to the distributor, uh, you know, 7-Eleven or something. And then the 7-Eleven pays that sales tax for it. And then they pass that sales tax onto the consumer uh, which then pays uh, that sales tax to the distributor, um, and the so I guess it I guess the money just keeps going back up the chain uh, along the dis- chain of distribution. So, and then the final consumer would be the one that would ultimately be paying the taxes, um, but then the distributor would be have have the one to file that money because. Who but you wouldn't be charging it though. Sales tax is only charged at the point of sale at retail. Right. So, but so it wouldn't just on the supplier and the wholesaler wouldn't be charging the sales tax. Right. But it's still a sale though. But you as a video store owner, your sale would be the rental. 
So every right. single time you got a rental, that's when the tax would be paid. And right. then finally sell the video because it's overstock and you have too many copies and it's old, yeah. that would be a sales tax. Okay. So the, um, yeah, so any service or good rendered would have like services I'm assuming would also be fall yep. under this. You buy a service. Um, now would, so I'm assuming that this would happen automatically because where does the money how does the government get the money from the uh same from, way they already do yeah so they they've already got remittance uh system set up where they have to fill out vouchers and make like you know invoice ids and you know yeah that question is mostly from ignorance of that yeah. so. but whenever you're putting through a pro a purchase order for business goods or for supplies or materials or whatever they're already doing that type of remittance. So it wouldn't change anything other than the numbers they fill out. It wouldn't be extra work. It wouldn't be extra accounting. It wouldn't be, that's sort of the big, the most obvious way to save money is the residual costs of governing and regulating a complex tax code. That's mm -hmm. a huge savings right off the top is just from that. The second mm -hmm. is we've already got the infrastructure in place to collect sales taxes. Right. So that there's no cost added cost to implementation other than like a two leaflet brochure to say like, you know, these are all taxable goods. And since you're doing a prebate thing for for everyone across the board, you're you're giving them the money that is taxed on on um, basic needs. You're giving a prebate at the beginning of the month, assuming everybody's going to eat that month. Mm -hmm. So yeah, somebody could screw you over and just not spend the money on food. But if they're that broke, let them, you know? <laughs> right. Now, um, uh, so this assumes that um, all the money is going to be spent inside your uh, tax jurisdiction. Uh, so if you're rich and you go to a place, you know, that if I'm a business, why can't I just move, you know, I, I sell something that rich people might want to buy and I move it to, uh, you know, such and such Island. And then you just, uh, you, you, we make the transaction there and then I just send the good to you, um, or the goods to you, uh, in your country that, so you just do the transaction outside of the taxes. Yeah, that's sort of what they do right now with customs. So the reason we have imports and duty duty mm -hmm. fees is because people are getting around the sales taxes and that's how they collect it. Right. That's even how they calculate it is based on where you live and where you're crossing the border and what type of good it is. Would there still be those? Yeah, and you'd have yeah. to because otherwise people would buy from elsewhere, like you said, and they would just have, uh, you know, you'd have all these little black market industries of people running back and forth across the border to save taxes. Right. But that so, would only be cost effective for large ticket items, things that are tax high enough that the cost of going across the border to grab it and coming back, that cost has to be less than the co than the amount they're saving by not buying it locally. Right. Like a fancy car, or a yacht or a plane. Right. Um, now, um, what about if... Um, so uh what happens if i want to sell you a uh i don't know some of my books i want to get you want a couple of my books and i'm going to sell them to you we had to do a little black market deal uh, you give me 20 bucks i give you the books and we're like all right see ya um 
that's a sale, but it's that becomes more illegal than it would be now because we get a lot of clandestine sales in our um, clandestine is an interesting word for it, but uh, <laughs> no, it really is. <laughs> but um, th- we get a lot of these sales in our society still uh, within our tax system, uh, but nobody really cares. It's like the government's not going to be like, you sold five books without taxes oh, or you sold this, these goods without taxes. How, you know, that's, that's, that's dishonest. That's technically fraud, I guess, but um, it becomes more of an issue uh, the underground economy becomes more of an issue when you have this sort of sales tax involved, doesn't it? You you might think so just looking at it superficially, but when you consider how we actually operate already, we don't expect people to claim income tax on garage sales. And that's very much like setting up a shop and, and putting up a sign. And it's very much a retail <laughs> operation. Yeah. But if you don't do it more than five or six or 10 times per year. You're not a business. Right. The government's not interested in double taxing because taxation without representation leads to revolutions. <laughs> so well, that's at the same time, if you, if you filed taxes for a garage sale, your accountant would look at you being like, mm-hmm. why? <laughs> this is a waste of time. Um, These are sort of the extraneous benefits, though, to a consumption tax, because if you create a market for used goods where people mm-hmm. reuse stuff that's still useful because it's cheaper for them to not pay tax on something brand new, to buy something cheaper and not taxed that's used, what you're doing is you're encouraging recycling without building recycling plants that are already losing us money. Right. Now, another what happens- shock of that, though, is with with people recirculating used goods, you're not going to be producing as much new goods if you have a huge market, black market, as we call it, of people buying used stuff. There won't be an overproduction of stuff we don't need. So you're also reducing greenhouse gas emissions. You're reducing shipping and freight. You're reducing people's write-offs for their inventory, um, capital depreciation from their businesses for, for items being sold under value or under what they call right. the MSRP RP or whatever, the suggested retail price. So there's all these benefits from having this legal black market economy of used goods because on a, on a whole, as a whole society, we're all benefiting from not overproducing garbage and from reusing stuff that's perfectly useful. Now, my initial thought is the example of... Um uh, online piracy. So you have this way online, which makes it infinitely more convenient to pay for, uh, to get something for free than it is to pay. Um, now if you have, a just, um, something that everyone wants, cause it's like Christmas and that's the one thing everyone wants. And you're an American Canada just instituted a consumption tax like this. And you see that you can go up there and you have all these dolls or whatever uh and um you you know that the canadians are going to be buying them for uh 100 with a 30 percent tax so it'll be 130 dollars canadian per purchase which means that 30 percent of all the sales will go to the government now okay i'm just using round numbers yeah, yeah. but um the you bring them over so you pay and you say i'm going to sell them for 100 dollars canadian uh, and they, they bring them over the border clandestinely and they sell them. Uh, now people are going to be watching out for that. 
but this could have a effect on, econ on the uh, whatever uh, manufacturing or distribution economy uh, that such like the entertainment industry uh, was experiencing with, you know, Napster and Pirate Bay and stuff like that. See, so the, the issue there is, I don't know, I, I'd say it's threefold. So firstly, people are already trafficking goods across the border and we're already have, you know, customs agents, as we mentioned, set up to, to deal with that. Um, secondly, right. there's fines for for doing it intentionally, making a business of that. So to do it at a scale that would actually affect the economy, and you'd have to be running an operation that's in the billions of dollars. And if you're trying to skirt taxes on billions of dollars, it's really easy to catch. Okay. You have one disgruntled driver who rats you out, or one pissed off customer who doesn't get customer support because you know they're buying illegal goods, so there's no better business bureau for them. There's no um, consumer protections in place. You can't sue somebody for false advertising if you're buying it under the table. Mm -hmm. so all sorts of like warranty benefits and securities that we take for granted today on the on the items we purchase that you don't get from the black market. So people who have the means to pay for something they will just to not have to deal with the BS. And right. people who are willing to deal with the BS usually wouldn't have bought that good anyway. So if they steal music because they can't afford to buy it, you're enriching the culture of your society by letting them steal music. Well, that's Netflix so kind of thing. philosophy, which I admit, but what's that? Well, if you have the money to get Netflix, it does make it, you know, you're guaranteed the quality and that it's going to be the file you want and it's going to, yeah, but uh, the price we pay for that is the content creators don't get paid hardly anything for it. Right. So the people who are writing the awesome scripts that go on Netflix are not getting paid nearly as much as they used to. But with the music industry and the movie industry, it was a an industry so so filled and wrought with glut that it produced multimillionaires out of things that like the Blair Witch Project. <sighs> I have no problem with somebody making money on a movie. But to say $100 million is a reasonable reward for creating art is kind of, I mean, unless you're Picasso and people are going to remember you for hundreds and hundreds of years, then yeah, you deserve your $100 million. Well, the art. Some backseat producer, you know, making anything that's just topical, like uh, uh, you, you're making racially inclusive or gender inclusive <laughs> movies or something just to, to spark the controversy and you get free advertisement from the controversy and you make a bunch of money. Yeah. And you don't actually say anything. You just pull yeah. heartstrings for an hour and go, my God, <laughs> that type of art doesn't actually contribute much to our culture capital. The only yeah. thing it contributes is to show that we have a culture of gluttony. So, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't tell us anything about our humanity or our, our values as people. So um, I'm not against them making it. I think everybody should be able to make stuff. That's what's wonderful about the internet and YouTube, but it's the sharing of information that makes the internet valuable. It's not mm -hmm. in the preservation of ownership of content that makes the internet valuable. It's mm -hmm. in everyone's access to it that makes it useful and good to a society. Right. Me, I'm always looking at what's the betterment of society. And if I can contribute personally through my work and endeavors to make society a better place, I would say that's infinitely more valuable than just amassing a whole portfolio of stocks. Yeah. Well, that's for another, um, that's for another yeah, show that we have planned. Time. I think that might be the Kenshin episode. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but um, the, 
I want to keep going on here because yeah, the art please. industry is its own like terrible animal. I think um, it's just finding a balance now. Like they went yeah. from one extreme to paying executives to another extreme of paying out artists to be like, you know, rolling just stones. Thinking of like the art industry being this like, you know, it's, 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 it's so deep. Look at it. And people are just going around paying money to have <laughs> this thing by this name as a banana on the wall. And, and like, see, that's but, where it gets relevant to today's conversation though, is because art is a good example of the way that wealthy people are avoiding paying taxes because they can buy a piece of art, it becomes valued at the price you paid for it, right? So you can then claim it as an asset, even though it's just a piece of canvas. You stick it in a free port and you never bring it into your country. You never pay tax on it. And there are free ports all over the world that operate like this, where they're just tax shelters for people who have hundreds of millions of dollars. And they buy and trade Picassos and stuff just to, to avoid taxes indefinitely. In perpetuity, yeah. they keep exchanging artwork. But it doesn't it's, contribute to society at all. And it doesn't value the paintings accurately. Yeah. Might have the art snobs with billion it. dollar paintings thinking that they're a good artist because their painting is expensive. Yeah, no. They're a good <laughs> artist because there is somebody trying to avoid taxes somewhere in the world. That's yeah. why they're a good artist. Your banana had potassium. That was its value. Yeah. <laughs> So, so um, our art has sort of changed because of our economic system too. And the taxation system is like, it's poisoning other industries the way it's set up. And that's why I think it's so important to change it. Even if not to a consumption tax, we have to change it to some way because the way it's working right now is corrupting everything around it. It's corrupted finance. It's cor corrupted religions and churches. It's corrupted like nutritional supplements and medications and the medicine Goop. industry, hospitals in the States, like benevolent giving gift giving is now like a trade. People set up benevolent yeah. funds. I always hated how like donate to this. You can get a tax rebate. It's like, so I'm just telling the government to give money to this rather than me actually giving money to it. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly well you it's just well you should be it's tax exempt thing it's like i'm giving money because i believe in this homeless shelter not because you know i can get you know tax credits for it or something and the worst thing is the homeless guy only gets a third of or less of what you contribute because yeah. the rest of it goes to people like me who worked in call centers and spent their days eight hours a day just cold calling people asking for free money somebody's yeah. got to pay my salary the call center is set up and it's a well-established business. And the business is we take 70% of all donations. Fine. It's money I wouldn't have got anyway as a charity organization. Sure. You can use our name and we'll approve your script and you can raise as much money as you want. But if they raise a hundred thousand dollars or a hundred million dollars from people saying it's going to the red cross and the red cross only gives 30% of it to the red cross and 70% of that revenue goes out to pay uh, all their ads and sponsoring. Like if you see an advertisement asking you to donate, they just spent $10,000 worth right. of donations for an advertisement asking for your money to say, Hey, this is going to the right people. Don't worry. Yeah. Clearly not. That's <laughs> why like you go, if you're going to donate money, either give it to someone who's actually doing something like something like doctors without borders or, uh, you know, go in and meet the shake their hand before, you know, before you and i think that's a good lesson for anything uh it doesn't really deserve its own thing the uh which i like to do when i'm doing business with people is uh they need to be able to pass the handshake test if i can shake their hand and get a good sense of them then 
I can do it. If they're not willing to meet in a blah, 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 or even like face to face like this, mm-hmm. uh, then like we, if we can't discuss what we're doing, then I'm not going to be giving you my money or I'm not going to be, I, we're not going to be doing, uh, like I'm right. not going to be, my services aren't going to you, but that's the thing you go into, um, there was one in Winnipeg, uh, West Broadway outreach center. Uh, I met the guy. He was great. Worked terribly hard to help those kids. Uh, he had a great philosophy. Uh, he did whatever he could to get them going and, you know, shake his hand. This is something, it's not just a front. It's a, it, they don't need a fountain in the foyer. So, you know, you can see this is someone that would use your money uh, effectively um, for the purpose that uh, is on the front door uh, rather than something like the Cancer Society, which renovates all the time. <laughs> yeah. And like, and having been in the general contracting field, I've seen that everywhere, even in government, they will spend money on renovations that need not happen just for the sake of paying somebody else off as a favor. So let's say there's um, a, a government office changes agencies. So the government already owns the building. Like I did one on Broadway here in Winnipeg. I won't say the address, but. So let's say it was like the housing department or housing and development of of the city. If they get a new headquarters or or they decide to downsize or they found a cheaper rent somewhere else and they move, they'll rip out perfectly good floors and and walls and they'll rewire the whole thing and say it's like necessary to conduct their business operations. But what, what they're actually doing though is they're giving out a favor to a contractor and the contractor's kicking back whoever signed off on that favor. And sometimes it's corrupt city councilors. Um, sometimes it's it's even as nefarious as paying off like senators and congressmen in the States or in Canada, like parliamentary officials. And um, th- there's a good book on it. What's um, David Montero, I think did a book called Kickback. Uh, it's not about Canada, it's about American, but uh, it's relevant to all countries everywhere because it's a standard business practice, especially in general contracting, where if you do a favor to one person, especially in like property management, which I also did, uh, if, if you've got a whole bunch of people signed up to one insurance company, they can offer you different insurance rates and you can offer that to your clients and say, here's a discount I got because I'm special and you pay me a premium as your manager so that I can get you discounts on your insurance. All they're doing though, it, like if I did this, it's not what I did, but if I did that, all they'd be doing is rewarding me for having a huge portfolio and I'd be rewarding myself through the insurance companies rewarding me for collecting more premiums than they would have otherwise captured. So it's just like this, this scheme of everybody kicking back and kicking back and kicking back. The only people who pay for it at the end of the road are the ones who are misled and misinformed the ones who are paying the premium and my management fees the pe- the people that I'm supposed to be serving you may think superficially well they they get a discount on their insurance look look how good their manager is but on the flip side they should have got that anyway because insurance shouldn't be a profit, profitable enterprise it's it's a failsafe for catastrophe you shouldn't be profiting from catastrophe bonds you know what i mean yeah, it's the moral issue in there. Um, it's almost yeah, kind of like kind of rooting for people to die when they've got life insurance plans, and you're the benefactor. <laughs> it's kind of why I uh, 
when we moved to Alberta, we kind of miss MPI a bit because it was cheaper. Uh, and we had to do, we had to, there was a lot of hoops and time wasted getting our uh, cars insured out here. Um, the insurance, that's all private in Alberta here. But it's way more uh, expensive out there too, right? It, it, well, that's the thing. We're paying more um, for the same vehicles to do the same thing. And it's just like, and it's he, like, I, here's I don't, the rub too. So somebody who's richer than you can buy a car with their company. They can write the expense off of their car as a deduction, as an expense. It's a business mm -hmm. operations expense, so they don't pay tax on it. So they buy the car. You still drive it, but they insure it, and they pay for that and write that off too. And then you don't own it personally, so if it breaks, you're not personally on the hook for buying a new one for yourself. Your company is. And right. your company is recruiting money from all sorts of revenue streams, whereas you're only getting a revenue stream of your employer. So your company is infinitely more capable of paying for that tax than you are. And it's not responsible for paying the tax, but you are. That's the flaw of the system as it is right now. And people who want to conserve the status quo are basically disregarding all those expenses and then claiming that people won't buy anything even if they're super rich because there's a higher sales tax on it down the road. And it's just patently false because people with money enjoy their money by spending it. They don't enjoy it by looking at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one thing I, the whole Scrooge thing, it's like he's got money, but how is he using it? Uh, so he's, he's miserable and he's got money to have money. Money, quite money is useless. Um, so I kind of, uh, one want to go into the goods themselves. Uh, so I have a note written here uh, that um, are all goods created equal? So mm -hmm. right now we have the those sin tax and the uh, excise, excise, yeah. excise tax. Thank you. Um, where you know we don't we want to make it harder for people to buy cigarettes, and we want people. You know, we want people who more responsible people. This is going to sound bad, but this is what they do. We want more responsible people to have access to liquor. Uh, so we're going to raise the price of liquor artificially through taxes. Um, so um, this is what we do. But under a fair tax or in consumption, whatever we want to call it, um, would we treat all goods equally? So. Um, there would obviously still be restrictions on certain goods that, uh, you know, heroin, uh, what comes <laughs> to mind. Um, and, uh, I don't, as much as it would be fun, uh, uh, intercontinental ballistic mistle might be beyond my, uh, necessities. Um, but, uh, certain things are illegal, um, for, a good reason uh and that's we probably a good topic for another episode too yeah because legality but because I, I i do have like i there are things to do with the drug war and um current things that are happening in canada with uh firearm legislation which there's another byzantine thing um then mm. they make it difficult for you to get and keep a firearm uh, and they make it so that the law can just 
make up a reason to get rid of to take it from you um even though you were using it and following all the rules um to a t or beyond them um it's like well i double locked it i put the safe in a safe <laughs> in a locked room <laughs> so it's not good enough uh but beyond that um so we also have exemptions in our country for um bread milk uh certain foods aren't taxed uh because we want people to have access to these just as the it's like the opposite of uh the excise tax um mm -hmm. you know we don't tax them i don't think we tax books um are certain books uh there's like i mean like uh used books or something like that uh and I think there was a movement that was partially successful to get um, uh, um, menstrual uh, accessories. I don't uh, know hygiene, what, feminine hygiene, feminine hygiene products mm -hmm. uh, to be uh, not taxed. And there's a there's a movement to have them be free, but um, but there's all kinds of stuff like that. that yeah, you'd want to you sort of want to categorize certain things, but the more categories you have, the more, the more leeway you give to people miscategorizing their products in order to evade taxes. Right. So the categories would be, so you got to keep good for sale and, uh, nothing. So yeah. everything most so like, good should be really obvious, right? Like anything medical that's proven FDA approved medical should not be taxed. And this is just my opinion. This isn't all, this isn't all consumption tax advocates. It's just mm -hmm. one way of presenting the, the, uh, the consumption tax, but there are straightforward goods like health supplements aren't necessary unless they're prescription. That's an easy way of going about it. So if you have like a legit iron deficiency and you buy an iron supplement, that shouldn't be taxed. Cause it's like taking a pill, but there is no pill for a pill. <laughs> or at least um but i think that might be remedied by the the way the current um things that are in because right now we the government subsidizes that uh the medical industry so that these things can be more affordable but i'm thinking more along the lines of is a house a good well yes though the difference between a house and a chocolate bar uh there shouldn't really be a difference between a house and a chocolate bar a house gets 33 percent tax a chocolate bar gets 33 percent percent tax because they're goods a mm. piece of land is a good a person no a person is not a good <laughs> so there's there's a line there so we can't pass that line because you can't buy and sell people because it infringes on their freedom so people are not goods um now services are goods right but then wait people perform so, services people perform services so the person mm. purchasing the service not the employer would be uh providing the tax um so you know you get a massage therapist they would uh you know you charge i don't know how much massage therapist is so you pay 100 bucks and now you're paying 135 bucks uh whereas you buy a hundred dollar tv and now you're paying $135 for a TV um, because they're both goods. Now, what happens if you have something? And I think this is uh, it's me, almost. Yeah, sorry. Let me tackle some of these questions before you keep piling them on. <laughs> oh, I got an entire notebook. No. Uh, yeah. So let's let's let you get into that. a bit. Yeah. So I'll, I'll try and start sequentially, but correct me if I miss something. Eh? Um, so you started off with the. Um, the categories of goods. So we've established that we already have certain categories that aren't taxable. Um, 
So the way Canada sort of does it just to make it really simple is if you buy raw food, there's no sales tax on it. And if you buy prepared food from raw food, like a bag full of frozen um, uh, potato chips or whatever, what do you call them? Fries. You can buy the potato tax free and make fries, or you can buy a bag of fries and you pay sales tax for the fact that somebody prepared it. Oh, so you're paying it for the service of the preparation of the food. And we already do that in the way we, we do our sales tax. So that wouldn't even have to change. Medications and supplements, though, we don't cover supplements unless they're a medical need. So unless somebody has a medical diagnosis of uh, an iron deficiency or anemia, the supplement, the vitamin supplement for iron is not covered by the government. And I'm not talking about sales tax. I'm talking specifically for like medical coverage because all of our medications right. and prescriptions are covered, except for ones that aren't generic and aren't necessary because other ones have failed. So basically, if you're on a bunch of antidepressants and you've tried all the free ones and none of them work, you can get an exemption for one that's not free. Or if you have the means and the money, you can get the newest, best drug out there right from the start and you can put your best leg forward if you can afford it. But um, to do that for everybody, though, would basically be giving a blank check to any drug company. And that's sort of why they don't want to do it. They want to rely on generics first and then you default to what's cheapest and best and home produced and then yeah so that's why my thought is is that you have as few categories as possible right and it don't, doesn't matter if it's uh menstrual uh what do you call it female hygiene. hygiene products i'm sorry uh uh that that medicine that you need um food or you know um school supplies but not house some not land prepared food though just raw food right so no but it doesn't bag matter of cut lettuce it's, is different from a head of lettuce right so the price would be increased uh but not that like the taxes wouldn't be uh so i'm saying yeah, like the taxes tax would be everything and they're like well what about this what about that no everything see if you everything. do that then you have to do the probate thing where you give people a credit at the beginning of every month for their basic needs because you're going to be taxing their basic needs as they buy. Right. So my thought is, is that, so the answer to that would eventually be to be, to look at, well, you don't have the answer. I mean, the way to find the answer would be to find out which one is more efficient um, and simpler. Is it to, because my thought is that if you create all these categories, the probate on my thought would be the better option. Because prebate, you, sorry, not probate. Prebate, yeah. probate. So the prebate. I keep would be saying probate, but it's a different word. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, so it would be a better option because in my head, uh, which is not an expert, but uh, my thought is that um, if you, the more categories you create, the more loopholes you're making, and if you just offer, uh, you know, medical prebates and uh, you know, uh, essential how uh, prebates, but like. And maybe like shelter prebates, uh, if you need, um, you can apply yeah. for them. And you, the individual would have to apply for them based on their income status, their uh, their um, ability and their needs. So if you have um, if you have diabetes, you get an insulin prebate, uh, or you know, and all the equipment that you need to check your blood sugar. Um, and I guess the pharmacists would have to be really involved here, but. Uh, they want to be See, that warm. stuff's already covered though we already do right that. we already do we, that you don't and have my to thought is my thought is that that infrastructure to decide who's what is already there just tax everything 
and figure it out later so that you can't have someone saying, well, um, my fleet of cars is actually a necessary expense for my business. And it's just like, doesn't matter. It's part of everything. Tax it. You can deal with it later. Um, and or the argument I, to that would be that creates a whole bunch of needless administration. You're taxing right. Taxing things that, you know you're going to give rebates back on, just don't tax it. It's okay. So my thought is, is make it as efficient as possible. And so, so uh, my idea, the most efficient way of making it possible to do it though, is, is just simply using, like you said, short number of categories. Yeah. And you just don't possible. tax them at all. Yeah. You, you never tax a potato period. Right. And then as soon as somebody cuts the potato and sells it on a plate, you tax the plate. Yeah. I'm, I'm more worried about seeing the thing I'm worried about again is efficiency, but the also thing I'm worried about is corruption. So what if you get, uh, you know, your starch spray, uh, or your vodka classified as a, you know, potato, it's like, yeah. (laughs) So this is where scales really come into play though, because the way they're gaming the system now is they're hiding trillions of dollars Mm-hmm. And doing that would be able to maybe get them a million, like yeah. just fractions of fractions of 1% we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. What's what's happening right now is hundreds of billions with a B are being held offshore and not taxed at all. And that right. money is being spent abroad and then brought back and not taxed at all. And then it's being kept in tax ha- havens, distributed amongst shareholders who are barely taxed. And then they write off those taxes that they do have to pay. That's the problem that we're going to be fixing by having this type of consumption tax. So mm-hmm. if you tax everything at 40% right from the onset, whether it's golf clubs or a basketball or kids' school supplies, if you know kids are going to need school supplies and you know how many kids are in a family, you can just give them a prebate before school starts for the taxes, for the materials that the school tells the parents to buy before they have to buy them. Right. Just plain and simple. They give you a list, buy this for your kids those items should just not be taxed. It's just plain and simple that, that mm-hmm. way. Medications. If there's a nutritional supplement you're voluntarily buying, pay tax on it. If you have a prescription and you show the prescription to the retail outlet, you don't pay tax on it. And mm-hmm. then they take that prescription number, enter it in on the receipt, and then the receipt goes back from remuneration for the government and say, hey, don't claim, don't tell me to pay taxes on this sale because this sale was prescription. So then all you have to do is regulate the doctors and their prescription givings. If they start getting too loosey-goosey with their prescriptions, (laughs) then you can just talk to the one doctor who's not playing properly rather Mm -hmm. than going after every point of sale for every transaction for every individual person buying stuff. That's the inefficiency you're cutting out. My, I'm going to stop doing this, I promise, in a while because I'm just going to be like, what about this? What about this? What about this? No, that's cool. But the last what about I want to do before we take up the entire day on this is... I still have um, to get the housing after this, though. Right. I do want to get the housing uh, because I also want to talk about mortgage stuff, uh, which I have next on my docket. Um, My little notes. Um, But education. Um, So a lot of people are arguing that education should be free. Now, that's dumb because teachers need to eat um and you can't just either way you're paying it through your taxes or you're paying it through your uh uh you're paying it through your tuition and tuition seems a little simpler um it's a false equivalency there though right you're you're saying that people are paying for it anyway through their Mm -hmm. taxes or they'd be paying through it personally they're not paying it anyway through their taxes Mm -hmm. the way the system is right now the people who can afford to, to to even that out 
aren't paying those taxes. That's the problem. That's what we're saying we're trying to fix. So to say that teachers wouldn't be paid if we stopped paying for school is just ignoring the fact that we'd be collecting taxes from people who currently aren't paying them. Right. So So they would actually get paid more if you made school free. Right. Now tax people appropriately. My thought is that if you under a fair tax, um, this would be more likely to, uh, oh, geez, I lost my thought. Um, because you have, um, uh, right now we have reliance on, uh, tax income to pay for the teachers. Um, so, um, those who are able to pay taxes, but not now we've been talking about corruption. So those who are able to pay taxes, but then don't at the top. So the ones in the middle are the ones paying most of the taxes. Um, so were we to institute a tax system that was able to, um, provide, uh, to have a fairer tax, uh, it would be more likely that this scheme would be able to work. Whereas right now we have to rely on. But uh, not just more likely that it'll work. What we're talking about are orders of magnitude. So if somebody yeah. who gets earns an income of an order of magnitude more than everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. What you're essentially doing is doubling the tax revenues. So everybody's right. taxes can get cut in half. So the money that you're currently spending on school, if you're not part of people who earn over 250,000 or 800,000 a year, like an obscenely large amount, mm-hmm. like, but it's so common that it's, it's, it's out there. It's not like nobody makes that much money, but for those people to just start paying the same tax that everybody else already pays, that necessarily means that for every one of them paying a tax they weren't paying before, like 500,000 of you get to pay less tax for the same benefit. Right. And you still get to have private schools. Yeah, uh, and if they want that, but that would be sales taxable too, because a right. private school would be a non-essential good. Public right. schools are an essential good, but but university should also be considered an essential good. And if you don't go to university and you just want job training, college should be an essential good. We're a high-tech economy. We have nothing but like nuclear reactors and large-scale infrastructure for like telecommunications and stuff. Like considering the expanse of our country, we were one of the first in the world to get like broadband internet access that was affordable to everybody. And yeah, that wasn't it's... just through the magic of Adam Smith's guiding principle. That was through like socialist regulation. <laughs> we didn't allow the phone companies of every province to override internet access and be, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, like, predatory yeah basically yeah we, we didn't allow them to mo- monopolize phone line systems when we had dial-up internet access we said no you can only charge it as a phone flat rate as you were doing before and Look the government at you, verizon and virgin <laughs> <laughs> and they did flirt with the idea of giving people free phone access because phones are necessary for people to file taxes and get information on their health and yeah in manitoba with mts you used to be able to get an mts phone they would just give you i don't know if you had to pay for it or but like cell phones are required to give emergency access even if you're you didn't pay your bill and you're cut off if you dial 911 on a dead phone it'll still work yeah Uh, unless it doesn't have any power (laughs) um but um, that's a metaphor right yeah (laughs) see yeah, I'm just I, I I'm trying to channel my inner knee jerk, um, like I should have it for free, or why why does this phone not have power? Uh, you know, because I don't have this thing right now means I'm being oppressed, kind of thing. 
Like, uh, I, took off, I took off you my fat cat hat. You don't think we charge for air, right? Like oh, just yeah. because things are free and we need them doesn't mean that it's it's a commodity that should be sold. Education is something that benefits the entire planet. Like we react to a pandemic better when our people can understand exponentiation. If we had an education system that taught people what viral meant instead of just like a video or a meme, there wouldn't be people going out there thinking that wearing a mask doesn't do anything because one person got sick through a mask. No, it's better if you have a totalitarian regime that just locks everyone down forcibly <laughs> at the gunpoint. That's way better. Uh, <laughs> no, what if effective. we... <laughs> it is. Well, is it? But... Um, oh, it definitely is. <laughs> to just shoot people, they'll never get COVID. <laughs> yeah, the, the Norks did that with their first guy that got COVID. He tested positive and they just went... <laughs> it's just like geez um but uh the um so let's move on to uh housing. housing uh does this include land so here's the thing all of housing is already inflated so there's a price re-stabilization that needs to happen no matter gotcha. what even with or without this tax reform like in in the 90s when we developed cmhc and we said all people should have access to home ownership houses you could buy for 20 to sixty thousand dollars there were still luxury houses out there. There were still people buying big houses with pools, but you had access to smaller houses. Since they implemented like um, explicit regimes to try and encourage and stimulate home ownership, which was a good idea in principle, they did it by leveraging debt. They did it by securing mortgage assets. And we all know what happened with the financial crisis was all about overvalued mortgage assets and mortgage right. debt being resold. So the problem in the system was never fixed. So if you try to make housing affordable by giving people enough money to pay the current market price, all you're doing is flip, get, making that bubble bigger. If you give people money to buy a house that's already too expensive, that raises the price of all houses. Every time you buy a house that's overpriced, it raises the price of all houses around it. Right. So and then we rich need to people buy up all the houses and give them to their friends. Uh, I'm looking at you, Vancouver. Yeah, which is um, <laughs> cool. They did it across the whole country, yeah. like everywhere in the continent, actually. Like realtors were making money hand over fist for, again, non-productive work of just signing the same agreements with different people and showing houses. I'm not saying it's not work, but it's certainly not worth $500,000 when there are people busting their ass on a production line who only make 20 bucks an hour. Mm -hmm. or in slaughterhouses or garbage pickers, you know, like there are people who work really useful jobs who we pay absolutely nothing like teachers and professors. And there are people who are doing very, like nobody would not know a house is for sale if it's listed on the MLS without the, without the realtor. So no realtor is providing a service that nobody else in the world could possibly provide. They're not worth that much money that they're getting paid. Well, why wouldn't Kijiji work? But then, you know, you can get swindled by a home seller or, you know, they don't tell you about stuff. So, But they do know, anyway. You... None of these realtors are actually qualified home inspectors. Like they look around and they just tell you everything's fine because they want the sale. They have a vested interest in processing transactions and churning through customers. They have no right. interest in making it take a long time to find a house for the right homeowner and the right buyer. That's just mm -hmm. fluff they market to people when they're trying to buy and sell a house because it's a business. So here's the thing. If you've got, if you're providing people mortgage insurance like Canada does CMHC on down payments for houses and you're encouraging people who can't afford houses to overextend themselves in debt and buy them anyway because it's good for them in the long run, 
it's only good for them in the long run if you keep getting people who can't afford their mortgages to buy houses. It only perpetuates if you keep filling the bubble. That's what makes it a bubble. If housing prices stabilize and it stopped being the biggest uh, asset of most families, if houses weren't considered a financial instrument, everybody could afford them because the prices wouldn't have gotten so big. So yeah, some people are going to lose money because they overpaid for their houses and the housing value goes down, but they should have known when they bought the house that they were paying $500,000 for a two bedroom flat. You know what I mean? Like that, that's just stupid. <laughs> yeah. And it's a $100,000 house. You really shouldn't have bought it. I'm sorry. Well, and you get places like, well, you have the, uh, privilege of living in New York. It's like anyone who's lived in New York, yeah. but then like you have the privilege, like I, 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 my guy keeps trying to swindle me. Cause he says like, Oh, you're close to white Ave in Edmonton. It's like, it's still Edmonton dude. <laughs> and it's three blocks from white Ave, And it's f- the three block. They had the end of the streets, a pawn shop. This is not a privilege. <laughs> like, it's like, so, and, or, but then you say, but then it, it's all marketing and the marketing inflates the price. But I so like- here's the thing. If those people lose out in a worst case scenario in a catastrophe, right? Because housing prices restabilize back to what they should be and they lose their homes and their shirts. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. Don't get me wrong. But they must have a decent enough job to have gotten a $500,000 house. And within one year, they will be able to make enough money to buy a house of equal or greater value for cheaper. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's stunting them for life or taking away all their inheritance money for their kids. And these people are going to be destitute and poor. They just write it off. People don't want any setbacks in their life. And they see a setback as a tragedy. It's like, Oh no, I have to declare bankruptcy this year. Well, that's just part of your life, dude. You have to deal with it. But why not think that you can work out of it? Like bad things happen in people's lives. This is unavoidable. If Mm -hmm. you're trying to live a life without, you know, some catastrophe, well, old age is going to have a few things to say to you. Um, But, um, but on the plus side, any business they start will have cheaper rent because all properties will be cheaper. Right. Everybody will have affordable rent for a business instead of paying 16 or $2,000 a month for a tiny little corner store, you'll pay $600 a month back to what prices used to be. Not, I'm not, I'm saying relatively used to be because they used to be like 10 and 12,000, but I'm saying like based on inflation up to today's market value from what minimum wages and standard of living is today, the equivalent $2,000 corner store per month rent would be something like 600 to $800, which is way more affordable. Plus because you're you're bringing in, you're not paying taxes on it. So you have 30% more money to spend and everything is 30% cheaper. That gives you a 60% increase in spending power. So I'm not really following. Okay. I understand that you're not paying taxes on rent. Uh, And I do want to get to rent because rent is a interesting little thing. Cause you buy a house, you pay taxes on because you're buying something, you pay rent, you pay taxes on rent, but then rent is a service, but a lot of people don't like landowners for that reason, but um, he's letting you live in his house for a fee, I guess. Um, but I don't see how uh, I must, maybe I missed it. I don't see how having a, this consumption tax would lower property values specifically or not property values, but the, the money that you have, the amount of money that you have to pay for it. 
what would happen what would have to happen in this system is you'd have to have you'd have to get rid of the incentives that people employ today that create the bubble of housing mm -hmm. prices right right now houses are considered capital gains right so if you earn income based on selling houses buying right. and selling houses you're only taxing half the money that you earn from it and you can mm -hmm. write off all the energy and effort you put into it right so that half that you do get taxed on becomes almost nothing that's how really wealthy people don't pay taxes because they don't earn an hourly income they get shares as payments, stock options. They get their companies to buy the things they would have to spend out of pocket regularly. They write right. that off as a business expense instead of paying sales tax on it. And then down the road. So um, your property is only as expensive as it is because there's an industry that subsists on inflating market value of houses. And every time you sell something for a price, that dictates the baseline for everything around it. Mm -hmm. So as if, if we all had like a million dollars and we go to a street that all has a hundred thousand dollar houses, every time you buy a house for a hundred grand, the next person would put up a sale for 110. Then the next right. millionaire would buy that for 110 and it pushed it up to 130, et cetera, et cetera. And that happened for 25 years now, 30 years through CMHC. Cause you had a pool of people who couldn't afford homes. Then all of a sudden you put in, um, legislation that enabled them to buy their homes and encourage them to do it. And the way they did that was by letting other banks sell mortgages in bits and pieces because it was considered a safe asset. And mm -hmm. it was only considered safe because the government was intentionally inflating the prices of it by creating demand where there was none before. So they want people to buy houses so that these people can. So people uh, were buying and selling houses that they didn't need to buy and sell. Right. So this so would be de-incentivized by having the tax revenue come from elsewhere. And because all of their income is based on percentages, the bigger the house, the more expensive the house, the more money they make from the sale. So mm. now we have an industry where we're not building affordable housing because there's no money in it. And we're only building luxury homes because every house is inflated in value. And they're ugly so people as hell are selling a house boxes. that they bought for 60 grand 20 years ago. They're selling it for 400,000 and that's a down payment on a million dollar mansion. Mm -hmm. The only people benefiting from that is the construction people when they could be building low income housing to them, it's no different. It's just hourly wage for building stuff. They're right. benefiting from it just from having the work, but they would still benefit even under a consumption tax system. But right. the people who don't pay taxes on this, the people who are most able to pay taxes and the people who currently aren't paying taxes are the ones that get all of that residual extra benefit out of the market. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that appreciate from the property valuation. So the landlord that bought in is one of the victims because now they have to charge a high rent to get back and pay their mortgage because they paid a higher price than actual value. Mm -hmm. So that applies to land too, to get back to your question. Right. Price of land is relative to the price of land around it. And if somebody is rich enough to buy up an entire scape of land and just hold it because nobody else can get it as long as they own it, that doesn't benefit the economy whatsoever to have them holding land just to wait for the price to go up. Oh, yeah. I keep thinking back to Locke where, you know, uh, like a hundred, like a hectare of land being used is more, is like a hundred or a thousand times more valuable than a, uh, you know, uh, an entire state of land not being used. <laughs> so 
but, um, but that sort of comes down to the relativity thing because people sort of forget that the price of things is relative to the person or to the market's ability or willingness to pay that price for it. Right. So the more people with more money in the market looking to buy the same product inevitably pushes the price higher because everyone selling something has a vested interest in wanting to make sure they get the best price for that good that they're selling. Right. That's how capitalism works. So because everyone's got a bit more money, demand goes up for everything because yeah. they have that. And, uh, and that means that the in- supply goes down because more people are buying from a limited resource. Right. So the prices get stabilized in favor of the consumers. Mm-hmm. And that can happen with a fair tax structure because suddenly there's no incentive for people to inflate a bubble. Mm-hmm. Suddenly the incentive is let's make our, our real estate as cheap as possible because we're not getting any tax benefits from inflating the numbers. Let's make it as cheap as possible so we can charge the least rent and mm-hmm. hold on to our property securely without market crashes and stuff. Like we should just have secure assets. We shouldn't need to secure them through insurance companies backstop by government taxpayers because the taxpayers are covering the insurance backstops and those insurance policies are only offered to people who can afford to pay taxes, but don't. Right. But with a fair tax system or a consumption tax, whether they like it or not, they're paying their taxes. And if you can't afford to pay taxes, whether you like it or not, you don't because you're not buying things with the money. Those poor buy. financial sector guys are going to be out of a job. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shucks. They might actually have to do something. Oh, no. Not just drive around in their BMW or whatever. Yeah. And, and again, I'm saying this having been a, a futures trader for, for commodities like oil and gold. I used to trade. I trade currencies. And currencies are just numbers on a screen. They mean absolutely nothing. The value of a dollar is relative to every other country's willingness to purchase your dollar. That's how you price it. But if you're going to buy something from abroad, you're not looking at fractions of pennies and worried about gaming the system. And you're not going to not buy something over a 1% differential. Like you buy it if you need it and you don't, if you don't, (laughs) then there's no risk of oversupply. But the biggest key is not having influencers like property development and things like that, that are manipulating the price of a good or a commodity. So whether you choose to categorize a home as something you pay tax on or not should be irrelevant because in the grand scheme of things, as you iron it all out, everybody will still be paying less, whether they're renting or homeowning. So it won't become a, you have to do this because it's not an investment vehicle anymore. See, we were taught you have to buy property and buy a home as soon as possible because you won't be able to afford it later. Yeah. And it's like a savings bank for when you retire and what that just washes out the window. Well, and get money market, cash and you don't have to hope that it appreciates in value. Like, and everyone's selling regular stuff as if um, it's a resale item. Like you're trading in everything. So you're like, you buy a car. Well, what's its resale value? It's like, who cares? I'm going to drive this thing into the ground. <laughs> um, like I'm going to drive it until it's like five years after it's dead. Um, but a business and, buying a car will buy a car based solely on the resale value. Right. So, well, but like, I don't business would, <laughs> but like, I'm gonna like, what happens if I buy a home and it's like, well, what's the resale value? You got to be always trading. You got to be always doing this. It's like, no, I'm buying a home to live in. Yeah. And hopefully my kids, like if I pass and then they can live in it, if they are in the town, but like, I'm not 
in the I'm not buying things. It's like, oh well, I got this copy of this book because you know it's uh, you know its resale value is higher. It's like, no, I'm gonna write in the book because I'm reading it to like learn what's in it. Mm-hmm. Like, I like what's I'm not gonna worry about the resale value of my hammer tools or something. Um, and it's absurd because think of that mental energy you're spending on something that's just trying to game a system, and the system is implemented to make sure that everything's running efficiently. Like yeah. it's ass backwards to motivate business decisions or personal spending habits based on taxation. It should just be based on, can I afford it? Do I want it? Should I buy it? Period. And everybody's going to make different choices. And some people are going to be poor because they don't want to work as much. And some people are going to be really rich because they're very productive or they invent things. But in the end, if housing is something that's affordable and accessible to all people who just want it, for people who are willing to, to work hard and save money, they should be able to. And right now they're not able to. It's not even capable the way the market's inflating faster than wages are rising. It's not even possible for somebody out of high school to get a minimum wage job and save money to buy a house. I mean, if it were possible, there would be more young homeowners, but there aren't. And that's why they're building luxury homes. So if you only tax new homes, a sales tax, Somebody who's really rich and wants a custom-built home will still buy their custom-built home. They'll even get it cheaper than they would have in an inflated market. That's the irony of it. Even rich people will have more spending power if they pay more taxes. That's what's being ignored throughout this whole conversation, not by you, but by people who are debating the issue. They're ignoring the spending power and the purchasing power people have when they actually get the money they earn. Like they're just focusing on the money that goes out. Like one of the major arguments they have literally of conservatives is that people will stop working if they get taxed more or they'll stop buying things if they get taxed more. In all of human history, that's never been the case. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. Anyway. Well, and doesn't matter what situation you have in place, there will always be the, uh, the consumer being like, or the uh, citizen being like, taxes equals bad. I don't want to pay them. Uh, like, cause I'm paying stuff that I would have had and now I don't. So there's always going to be that. It doesn't matter what system you have. It's going to be an evil. Uh, mm-hmm. whereas on the other side of that, it's going to be like, how do I get more from the government? So it doesn't matter which system you have, this dichotomy is going to be present. So it's better to have a dichotomy that is more efficient than to just <clears throat> give into like, uh, you know, now the, government's more powerful and so the get more money is going to happen oh now the uh citizens are more powerful because you know it changes and now and we're going to get rid of uh one of the taxes so now the government's not going to get as much money so now we have to you know play by the whims of uh history and hopefully uh it'll come out to our advantage but then that's a those arguments all rely on a momentary advantage, the advantage of the now, not the advantage of now into the future. Right. Um, And that's crucial. So uh, it's like with this pandemic, if you were super rich and you wanted to live in a country that can withstand a pandemic, you would want to live in an educated country by not paying taxes. You now have a whole bunch of people who are very poorly taught in school, thanks to common core and, you know, gentrification and all these other types of racial issues that we don't have to get into. But the point is, if you're a rich person and you want to live safely during a pandemic, that hinges upon all of the people in your country also being smart enough to know that, like, 
you know, 1.2 infectious rate, reducing that to a 0.9 means that the infection rate goes down. Mm. Just knowing that math makes everyone in the country better off. And it's, right. not, and it's not the premier money. can go up there and be like, this is it's what we have, this is what we want. And he doesn't have to explain it to us because yeah. even if we have to think about it for half a second, which he's like, oh, I don't have to think about anything. Well, that sucks to be you then. But, you know, take a half second to think about it. And you're like, okay, I get what they're talking about. But, but like to, uh, to not live in a country that's riddled with crime and addiction and people without health care and, you know, like all this desperation that is needless, that causes that has a cost on society. So to say that I don't want to pay taxes because I want to hoard money for myself and I don't care that other people are having like mental illness issues or old people don't have places to live or food to eat or care. Like well, it's, that's it's, cynical, it's basically like, saying I'm never going to get everyone's old. out for like everyone's only out for themselves. That that cynical attitude where even if you are, that's the that's the funny right. thing. That's the ironic thing I'm getting at. Even if you just think of yourself you should still want to pay taxes because it's cheaper to help people through taxes than it is to deal with the ramifications of arsonists and murderers and drug dealers and, and, you know, having homeless people all over your street and calling the cops and having them deal with it. And all of these costs for like firefighters and teachers and, and prisons, like all of those costs come down to somebody, but it's not the richest people that are paying for it. So that's why they don't want to pay tax. Everyone else is paying for it. So 99% of the population should be in favor of it, even if they're just greedy and selfish, because mathematically, they'd all be better off. And even the guy, the 1% who has to overpay, even they are better off with less money because they live in a better country. They live in a country people want to invest in. That means they can invest in their companies and their businesses. That means they have better employees. So like it's it's in everybody's best interest, even if you just look at it selfishly and economically, to pay more taxes, because more taxes means that you live in a country that your spending power is worth more. It goes further. Your quality of life and your standard of living is higher with more taxes. That's what Switzerland knows. Yes. Like that's what they do very well is they tax a lot and everybody has a really high standard of living. And there are tons of really rich people in Switzerland. So... That's actually a good example, and uh, I think we're probably coming up near the end. Yeah. Uh, but um, Switzerland is an interesting example, and because uh, uh, it is a very, it seems like a very successful system because they've had a a um, remarkable longevity of their system, um, especially the considering st- their neighbors. Yeah, and the like, the remarkable longevity and stability. Uh, now. Um, regardless of what you think of that, uh, this, just because we say, oh, we need to give the government more money, uh, and that's what it sounds like. Well, we are saying that, I guess, but that doesn't mean that the government is beyond reproach. Now, one of the things that has been levied against something like America and, uh, these larger mega nations, um, Versus, you know, you point to all these uh, Scandinavian countries and Canada and Switzerland and Netherlands and Belgium, but these are all very small nations relatively. So uh, my thought is it's you need to hold your government to account. But when your government's that big, uh, my thought is, would this my question would be, would this um, would this work better in a more decentralized uh, 
um, country. So not decentralized as in like, uh, you know, well, Switzerland is actually very decentralized, but um, Canada's got only 35 million people and it's easier to talk things out amongst ourselves because of that. And we can have, it's easier to do a healthcare system because of that. But when you, when you go up an order of magnitude and look to the border in the South, things get a lot harder and more complicated because of that. Now, they do have a union of states instead of just having one state, which means that they do have the potential to do this on a state level, which would, uh, rather than on a federal level, would that be, uh, would that, and my thought is, you know, um, that would allow the citizens of those places to hold their uh, governments more responsible were they to inadequately uh use this system so in my opinion it all comes down to um a lot of its geography and politics yes and i mean we can delve into that and probably it sucks to be west virginia i'm i'm guessing <laughs> like it's not so, they don't really have a good <laughs> so to, to make that point a little bit more clear like point let's let's contrast compare and contrast um what's norvege uh I can't remember the English word for the. What's the French word? Norvege? Norwegia? Oh, um, Norsh. Norway. Yeah, Norway. Norway. Sorry. <laughs> Brain fart. We've been doing this too long. So yeah. you compare Canada to Norway, right? Norway has a sovereign wealth fund because they have state owned assets like oil production and they yeah. pay out their citizens and some of their tax revenues comes from oil production, right? Whereas in Canada, we have. Um, we get the oil companies to pay the government like a license for mining rights. And then they have a certain number of years that they can extract as much as they want. And then they just pay regular income taxes on what they sell from that. Right. So there's a difference in systems and collections. But what I wanted to get at with those two examples is Canada has 36 million people or 35 million or whatever, but we have a huge expanse of land. So we have more expenses just in looking after our home than right. most small Scandinavian countries have looking after like snow barren Alps that you never plow. We're constantly plowing that. roads and that's like yeah. huge expenditures of money and energy to salt and plow and then fix cars from the salt. And yeah, Winnipeg goes over budget every year. Yeah. And, and they can't know it's coming every year and you put they... more roads every year. Why would you think that the snow plowing is going to be less if you have more roads to plow? Like, <laughs> looking at you cats <laughs> but with that said we're still talking about fractions of percentages overall mm -hmm. like if if the bulk of the money that's made in this country is not being repatriated or paid in taxes already if you start only paying or only collecting taxes through consumption oh sorry yeah go on yeah, if you start only I, collecting taxes through consumption, it would be less than 40% because that's the highest number right. that I found anywhere in the world. Now, what I'm saying is that, uh, what I, I wasn't really asking about amounts, I was more saying, what if your government, so you give your money, your government more money. You're talking about centralization of power, I'm getting to that. Well, yeah, so I was more wondering about what if happens if they spend it on a casino that flops and now your entire municipality is destitute and doesn't matter that's how much fair tax you put back into it huh? that that can only happen through leveraging debt okay you have to allow somebody to borrow enough money to build a casino that could go flop so you're saying it's harder to screw up yeah it's way harder to screw up when you have to have cash in hand and you're not leveraging bubbles 
like when the property itself only costs 300 grand instead of 1.8 million, that's a huge difference in your operating budget, right? Like right. that's a lot of leeway you didn't have before just because your margins were razor thin because of how expensive real estate is. And real estate's only so expensive because they're propping up the, pr the prices by only building luxury homes. Mm. So in a consumption tax system, used homes would not be taxed and new homes would be. So if you're going to buy a $2 million mansion, you're going to pay $400,000 in tax on it and you're going to pay it outright. You're not going to get a mortgage or a loan to pay that. You, know, you shouldn't be allowed to get a mortgage for a home that is potentially um, underwater already the day you buy it. So to decentralize the, the, the system and the power of governance and all that, I sort of want to get back to the ideas that we gave from the data episode about um, open source. So if you open source government and you make forums of people who are interested and involved and you give ratings based on, um, based on public con contributions, like proposals with data and science and like white papers and journal articles and things like that. If you had a forum of government that ran and managed and just had people processing all these white papers that individual citizens wrote up, you would have a decentralized government filled with only people who are actively involved, who want to be there, not because they're being paid to do it. And the recognition those people get could be used to get them elected as elected representatives. And then you'd know that these people have active working knowledge of the policies they're talking about. It's not just a popularity contest anymore or party politics. You're voting on an individual who has a track record of like say 150 white papers being proposed and upvoted by a whole bunch of citizens. And then if you're just the type of person who wants to criticize, you can do that too and get upvoted for your, your critiques and your scientific analysis on everybody's white papers. Could we define white paper for those who aren't familiar with the term? Oh, it's just like a, it's like a research project with a proposal and a hypothesis in mind to help people come to a conclusion that you've already established. So like uh, security is an example. A lot of people, if they find a security vulnerability in software, They'll write a white paper to explain and describe it. But what they, I mean, first they tell the company and then they patch it and plug it. Then afterwards they go out and tell everybody what the, the flaw was because you don't want other people writing code that creates the same security flaw. So you want to tell everybody about it. So it's kind of like publishing a, a scientific journal article, but for, for different things. But it's structured, right? So every every one of them has like an abstract hypothesis and supporting corroborating data. And so these would be taken to um, you post them on the open forum, and mm -hmm. instead of allowing people to like boost their posts like they do in Facebook just by paying money, everything's just randomized. So if you want some credit because you want to get into government, you can just spend time in these forums analyzing and criticizing people's proposals and other citizens can upvote your criticisms and say, hey, that was actually useful contribution. And then if it's not, then it just, it's there. Everybody can see it, but you don't get credit. Okay. So it's, um, it's like a Reddit forum or no, but it would be like a, um, uh, out like uh what do you call that sorry not outsourced um crowd oh geez what do they call that where you you get 
volunteers uh like you just put a call out for random volunteers open uh, source works like that open source parliament no yeah, you could do that and, you'd and it would have to be people in government to debate the issues but you'd have the most competent people elected because they would all be people who are active in these forums they would know mm-hmm. these policies and the data the data front to back you wouldn't just right. be electing somebody that you've seen you would need that they- you would need to have that data thing that we came up with in that episode, in this episode two, uh, <laughs> in order to check the findings. Cause, um, whether it's online or on television or on the street corner, you can make a claim. And if you get enough people going, yeah, then you can win mm-hmm. an election. Um, so but in this case, you can get a whole bunch of upvotes for an ignorant commenter or something like that. Right. But everybody could see it. Yeah, and if and you use logic, you get downvoted doubly hell. <laughs> and you can get more upvotes for the criticism than that comment itself. So even if people tried to game the system, you could fight the game just by simply having a response that's linked to it. So every time they see it, they see the most popular response. And if that mm-hmm. response is more cogent than the actual criti- uh, criticism, as, so it feeds off each other, right? Eh? Right. So as interesting as this is, I think it's getting a bit off topic. Um, yeah. So uh, but that's how you would keep people from corrupting it is sort of what I was getting at is if you right. have a blanket sales tax and everything set up equally for everybody, you'd get more money in just to summarize, you get more money in from the richest people or the richest earners, not just the richest people for having money, but people who earned the most money, they would still spend money because we know it's absurd that rich people just decide to hoard money for the sake of looking at it. They want to improve their standard of living and quality of life. They spend money. They will. That's why I earn money money is so I can spend it. (laughs) Yeah. And the other part to it is uh, not taxing used goods. And if people want to just buy used goods and save all their money and not pay tax, they can feel free to be part of the recycling revolution, man. Like we're saving money, not recycling used disposable goods by having people buy used goods. It's a way more efficient practice to encourage people to buy used products that still work. And if you want new products, great. And you can afford them because you know what? Your income tax is now distributed evenly across high income earners. Whereas before only the middle and lower classes were paying the taxes. Right. And it's simplified simply by the fact that you're taxing goods and not taxing, Mm -hmm. you know, every little, you know, uh, different type of earning. And every uh, line item and deduction that you process through your taxes now, all of the government tax workers and audits, that all that expenses is saved. We have the infrastructure already to tax people at point of sale. So it would cost nothing, rel- relatively nothing to implement. Yeah, uh, banks wouldn't like taxes. it, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, so that's sort of the, the rundown tears. approach to it. So, um... Were there any final comments you wanted to make or you think that's... Uh, I think the way we go about the fair, the consumption tax is still open for discussion and people should discuss it more. But the fact that we need a consumption tax to replace an income tax, I think should be at this point irrefutable. Um, there's a lot of people still making arguments against the consumption tax, but literally the only arguments I keep hearing from the most outspoken proponents of it are... Uh, to say the least, they're incoherent. Yeah, one of the best ones that I found here while uh, while I was looking into some stuff was that it was uh, created by the Church of Scientology to 
control people and destroy its enemies. Just like, <laughs> what? This yeah. was in the Wall Street Journal in well, 2007. They'll pin it on elitists too. Like there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. It's right. not an elitism issue or people like trying to yeah. appear over well, the- Well, you're not virtuous just because you don't have money. Like, yeah, like, it doesn't work like that. It's like, oh, like, like uh, that's that's just culture, though. You you know, you lost your way when you got wealthy. It's just like, did I have a family and more responsibility now? And uh, you know, I got stuff I need to do, and now I'm the evil one. No, mm-hmm. it's like, and you, with the system the way it is now, it, it's irresponsible not to work with it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you know the government and all of society is trying to push housing prices up, regardless of whether you think it's right or not, the best way to secure your financial future is to at least follow the road so you don't get left behind well that's what f- causes income disparity is when people don't participate in a system like that the thing i like about this is that it's not incompatible with our system of our uh, governmental system of because we put the individual as a constituent part of the system so we're a, we're a group of citizens that come together and give consent to a government uh poli sci guys don't i know you're cringing right now but whatever (laughs) um but we are essentially free people in a free society who have representative assent give representative assent to a political body so that you know we can go off and be free uh the alternative is we can just be uh constituent parts of a state uh you know some collectivist ethos which i don't subscribe to like a collectivist ethos doesn't make much sense if everyone if central planning is instituting a fair tax then why don't they just take the money from their citizens anyways but because we're a free society and we want capitalism to kind of work this allows people to put their money where their mouth is and that almost incentivizes that freedom uh in my mind um so i, like I think that. it also empowers and enables people who are otherwise left behind because yes. if you get stuck in a trap where you can't earn investment income and everyone else can, you'll never keep up pace. Right. And that's not fair to kids born from low-income households or single parents. I mean, the easiest way to frame it, I guess, just for one last analogy for um, economies of scale and, uh, and that sort of thing. If, if, if you're renting a place just for yourself, you need your own pots and pans, your own food and your own you pay all, all your money basically goes to just supporting yourself. But as soon as you have a partner or a roommate, a lot of your mate, your biggest expenses are cut in half. And that's what you'd be doing by encouraging everybody pays taxes and stop exempting people and giving write-offs and stuff to the ones who can most afford it. Is that suddenly you'd be distributing, everybody would be able to live as if they have a roommate, even though they don't. They could afford to live on their own with the same relative amount of disposable discretionary income as they would have if they had two incomes. It would just level everything out so it would be possible to get ahead even if you're single or even if you come from a poor background or if you're a minority that's marginalized and we still haven't gotten around to looking after our racial issues. (laughs) At least it levels the playing field a bit so that everybody can just put money away and save for something. And like everything, I think it's it's not a panacea. It's not going to fix every problem. It's like, why didn't oh, this? Oh, God, no. Like, this is going to make it marginally easier and more efficient, which is, in all honesty, that is a good thing. Like, we, mm. we can't fix everything. And, if, um, and the rest has to be taken up by the individual. Um, so, you know, if, if, if 
if you're still failing after all this and you're given all this extra stuff and you know you get grants and like, even in this society if you get grants and you get all this stuff and you're still failing the common factor is you <laughs> so um and even in this society you're still gonna have to try you're still gonna have bad days you're still gonna uh but you, you know, won't be desperate that's the difference right there'll be you less have desperation to do it with desperation you can do yeah. it just because i want a better life rather than i might not eat tomorrow and i'm scared to death right yeah so, so thank I you think... so much for the conversation and thanks everyone for listening to frivolous gravitas yes we'll see you guys next week have a good week. Oh, do we have an idea what topic we're going after next week? Uh, I think we might talk, uh, look, dive into uh, historical matters next week. Yeah. Yeah. So it might be why history? Uh, and we're going to go beyond the uh, those who do history are doomed to repeat it cliche because I don't think that I think that's a it's, it's very easy to say that and move on. Um, but history is a lot more in into our lives as than we think it is. And it's a very important thing because um, history is memory. And that is all that really is left over. Um, so that's kind of where we're going to go with that. So sounds intense. I can't wait. Yeah. And uh, like I said, if you guys have any thoughts or comments, leave them in the thing. Um and the best way to below. support our channel is to like and share. Yeah. All right. Have Ooh. a good night.